the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy January 18th, 2021. Today, the nation commemorates Martin Luther King Jr. Day, or tries to, or should. I've had a long relationship to this holiday, and while it's impossible to know what King's politics would be today, it's not inappropriate to point out that not every civil rights worker in the 1960s would be a liberal Democrat today. For example, Reverend King's closest friend and associate, Ralph Abernathy, endorsed Ronald Reagan in 1980. James Meredith, the first black man to be admitted to the University of Mississippi and a leader of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, was a Republican and ran for office as a Republican. He even worked for Jesse Helms at one point in his life. Why do I raise this as a point? There are other points to make here, too, and I will momentarily. But the reason I make this point is that, while many may wrap themselves in the mantle and symbolism of Martin Luther King Jr., and many in the commentariat and policy worlds have forged the civil rights movement of yesterday and today into a representation of liberalism in the Democratic Party. It's simply not at all clear or evident that the two are the same or even that the two stand for the same thing today. Let us remember Martin Luther King's junior commitment to our national moral condition. As I quoted last Friday in one of his most famous sermons, he said, It is midnight within the moral order. At midnight, colors lose their distinctiveness and become a sullen shade of gray. Moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. For modern man, absolute right and wrong are a matter of what the majority is doing. Right and wrong are relative to likes and dislikes and the customs of a particular community. We have unconsciously applied Einstein's theory of relativity, which properly described the physical universe, to the moral and ethical realms. Midnight is the hour when men desperately seek to obey the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. According to the ethic of midnight, the cardinal sin is to be caught and the cardinal virtue is to get by. It is all right to lie, but one must lie with finesse. It is all right to steal if one is so dignified that if caught, the charge becomes embezzlement, not robbery. It is permissible even to hate if one so dresses his hate in the garments of love that hating appears to be loving. The Darwinian concept of the survival of the fittest has been substituted by a philosophy of the survival of the slickest. The mentality has brought a tragic breakdown of moral standards, and the midnight of moral degeneration deepens. To speak of moral standards and moral degeneration is to speak a language the modern Democratic Party has abjured totally and completely. I hope the Republican Party, in all its rethinking, does not do the same thing. But let me continue on the legacy of civil rights just a moment. Many in the civil rights movement of the 1960s have moved pretty far from liberal orthodoxy today. Rabbi Mark Gelman, for example, ties his civil rights understandings to his support for a pro-life position on abortion. And while this time of year usually also witnesses the annual March for Life, perhaps it's, perhaps it's not so wrong to quote something Reverend Jesse Jackson once said. Listen to this. There are those who argue that the right to privacy is of higher order than the right to life. I do not share that view. 
I believe that life is not private, but rather it is public and universal. If one accepts the position that life is private and therefore you have the right to do with it as you please, one must also accept the conclusion of that logic. That was the premise of slavery. You could not protest the existence or treatment of slaves on the plantation because that was private and therefore outside of your right to be concerned. What happens to the mind of a person and the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without a pang of conscience? What kind of person and what kind of society will we have 20 years hence if life can be taken so casually? It is that question. The question of our attitude, our value system, and our mindset with regard to the nature and worth of life itself that is the central question confronting mankind. Failure to answer that question affirmatively may leave us with a hell right here on earth. Close quote. That viewpoint used to suffuse the civil rights movement. You can still hear it from Alveda King, but not much elsewhere. Now move with me away from abortion politics for a moment and think about race politics. Quite simply put, is it more moral to think of people and give some of those people benefits because of the color of their skin while we take opportunities from others because of a different color of their skin? That, in essence, is what affirmative action today has come to mean. In the 1950s and 1960s, the civil right effort was to take race out, extirpate it from any decision-making at all. To hew to that position today is to be called racist. Think of the times we are in. Not taking race into account is racist. Taking race into account is a commitment to anti-racism. The king ethic was integration. Somehow, today, it is more in step to separate, once again, segregate by race, be it dorm rooms or graduation ceremonies or elsewhere. Another interesting and ignored or forgotten aspect of Martin Luther King was how much of the tradition of the West he absorbed and used or taught. As William Bennett pointed out, quoting Arthur Schlesinger, Martin Luther King did pretty well with Thoreau, Gandhi, and Reinhold Niebuhr as models. And remember, after all, whom King and his father were named for. The record hardly shows that Eurocentric education had such a terribly damaging effect on the psyche of black Americans then. Why deny it to black children today? Martin Luther King embraced the West, the philosophical tradition of the West, the universalism of Western philosophy, and believed that the tradition was the tradition that led to the liberation of black men and white men and black women and white women. From Morehouse to Crozier Theological Seminary, where King studied, King immersed himself in the writings of great philosophers, also from the West. From Plato and Aristotle, he wrote down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. Here with these teachers was planted the seed not of a contemplative life, but of a life of action, a life of thoughtful devotion to political reform, to the pursuit of justice, in the broader sense, equality, liberty, and the dignity of all people. King turned to the great philosophers because he needed to know the answers to certain questions. What is justice? What should be loved? What deserves to be defended? What can I know? What should I do? What is man? As a result of the way in which King answered those questions, out of and through the Western tradition, Jim Crow was destroyed and American history was transformed. I have no objection in case anybody is interested as students studying cultures that are not Western, I think that's fine, but they should not be denied access to the best and greatest philosophical tradition in the world, the one that has transformed society around 
the world, the one that is the intellectual and moral and political currency, not only of the world that developed in the West, but for all people. And students, black or white, would all be better to imitate what Martin Luther King did rather than our current trend. You see, what we get in the Western tradition in a way I think it is missed elsewhere is the right of the individual over the group or anything else. And with that right, the right to also have sovereignty and to think individually and to act for self and societal correction. Summoning his learning from Western philosophy, King wrote in a letter from Birmingham jail the following, quote, How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. In short, it diminishes the role and special uniqueness of being a human being. As much as we spoke last week of the law of consent and minority rights, the entire theory of freedom and equality being the sheet anchor of consent, few taught it as well as Martin Luther King. Lincoln put it this way, as I would not be a slave, I would not be a master. He would write, no man is good enough to govern another man without that other's consent. Lincoln would say this is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. Good word, that, sheet anchor. You know what it means originally? It's a nautical term, a large spare anchor used in an emergency. But the point I'm making, King was making, Lincoln was making, that Jefferson outlined, might does not make right, and majorities in a, reform, in a Republican form of government or democracy must respect minority rights if the democracy is to continue. That is how consent is achieved. King put it this way, quote, let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code the majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in enacting or devising that law. And finally, as we've spoken before of as well, King was fond of the founding. He found all of these arguments in our founding. He did not try to change our founding or its date. He wanted us to relearn it and concretize it, recommit to it. Thus he would call our Constitution and Declaration of Independence magnificent, just as Frederick Douglass would before him, calling them freedom documents. We could all use a bit more of that king right now, actually a lot more of it just now, starting with what Martin Luther King Jr. said in August of 1963. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
By the way, the title of that most famous march in 1963 was March for Jobs and Freedom. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602508-0960. I hope you had a good weekend. And um, Bill's in a funny mood today. I don't know why, but you woke up with your funny bone tickled. You've been keeping me entertained all all afternoon. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, no, your you opinion, are. man. You're being very funny. Anyway, um... There's a lot to talk about here. I, I have a prediction to make. Um, Joe Biden's inauguration speech on Wednesday. This is not a man of soaring rhetoric. I, I bet it's going to be a dud. I bet it's not going to be a very good speech. Uh, we'll see. I, it, it's it's coming at such an eerie time. Again, they are forcing this issue of militarized Washington on us. 20,000 troops wasn't enough. We're now told there's 21,000 National Guard troops and growing for what for what is there any credible intelligence at this point of any serious or credible threat no but that is the message they want to hammer home listen to this this is a disgrace this is a member of the house judiciary committee steve cohen i think he's from tennessee steve cohen on cnn this morning listen to this on the on my twitter account i guess and people were reminding the people of Anwar Sadat and Indira Gandhi, who were killed by her own their own people. Um, you know, I was thinking the guard is ninety some odd percent, I believe, male. Uh, only about twenty percent of white males voted for Biden. You got to figure that in the guard, which is predominantly more conservative, and I see that on my social media, and we know it. They're probably not more than twenty five percent of the people that are there protecting us who voted for Biden. The other 75% are in the class that would be uh, the, the large class of folks who might want to uh, uh, do something. And there were military people and police who took oaths to defend the Constitution. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine questioning by dint uh, every, every part of this? First of all, by dint of their gender and race, what their political predilections are, preferences are, Starting it off with the thought of an Anwar Sadat situation and that the National Guard is made up of people who would want to do harm to the incoming president of the United States because of their politics based on their gender or race. They talk about censuring Donald Trump and other members of Congress. How does this not deserve a massive censure? How does one blanketly target the National Guard that way? How does one blanketly say that he's worried that the National Guard is going to do some kind of Anwar Sadat-type action? Well, it fits in, I suppose, if you follow the thread of reasoning, when two members of Congress already have called Trump supporters the equivalent of ISIS or al-Qaeda, that having come out of the movement that killed Sadat, obviously. But my gosh, my gosh. So we have gone from being extremists to white supremacists to now terrorists. That is the latest effort in what they call Republicans who have supported Donald Trump. 
And I see Katie Couric has now weighed in, thank goodness, saying that we need to be deprogrammed. Has anything sounded so much from 1984 as the last as the as the comments out of the left in the media from the last two weeks anything at all anything at all you know the idea that washington has to be shut down for this and that there has to be razor wire around the capitol is coming at a point when someone should ask i want to know what the credible threats are I want to know what they are, because when Donald Trump had talked about using the National Guard to protect monuments, he was condemned. When he used when he talked about having a military parade in Washington, he was condemned. We're going to have to get used to all kinds of obvious hypocrisy here. No question. We're going to have to get used to it. And I suppose we'll start seeing some with whatever Joe Biden decides to say about the Honduran caravan that's in Guatemala right now, working its way or trying to work its way north. He's not going to want that on his shoulders either. Has Biden said or done one thing, said or done one thing to extend a hand or to ask for the unity that he promised he would give? Do you realize that almost every presidential administration, almost everyone, has a member of the opposite party on the cabinet. His does not. Do you realize he has not a single repu- – every cabinet you can think of had one member of the other party in it. Yeah, they weren't always the, you know, the most stellar representative of the party. I grant you that. But it was at least a prima facie showing of some effort at bipartisanship. They're not interested in that at all right now. They're interested in deplatforming and categorizing us as, as I said, no longer extremists, no longer just white supremacists, but now terrorists. Terrorists. I suppose we should have seen that coming when Barack Obama as president spoke of al-Qaeda as extremists. As A is to B, B is to C, C is to D, A is to D. We are now al-Qaeda, we Republicans, from the Taliban wing of the party, no doubt. Used to hear that as well. It's going to be a heck of a ride. Two years won't come fast enough. We better do this right, folks. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Dombrowski gives us our culture and economy update every day at this time. He of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Happy Monday, John. Same to you, Seth. How you doing? Doing fine. Doing Great. fine. Is it a slower day for you when the markets aren't open? Yeah, absolutely. There's not much we can do other than I do a, do a couple of meetings and so forth but uh, and do some basic uh, research and such, but... Uh, not much else I can do today. Is it is it is it a day you look forward to to do catch up work on stuff? Is it yeah. like April sixteenth for tax tax for accountants? Sure, okay. that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay, I can't check out, but I uh, uh, definitely not as busy. All right, uh, Wall Street Journal survey economic growth predictions for twenty twenty one. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was interesting. We got a, a bump up, an increase in what the uh, expectation for growth would be for the U.S following uh, coronavirus, what the expectation, a lot of this expectation, I would say, Seth, really falls upon whether or not the 
vaccines are going to be effective and if we're going to be able to get them out there. In this article, they do talk about an increase uh, of up to 4.3% growth for the year of 2021, and that's a jump up from 3.7%. So um, that's a pretty good jump. And then also they're stating here that it's going to start slow in the first quarter of 2021, and they expect it to ramp up towards the end of the year. Um, but vaccines are going to be the key. They're stating in this article that they believe the economists all agree that the vaccines are going the rollout slower than what they expected. How, there's a there's a, a bit of an argument over um, the state of the economy right now. Incoming administration wants to paint it as in particularly bad shape, obviously, as a reason to justify what their intentions are and justify their their forms of legislation. Um, as the economy goes, though, it's not in as terrible shape as perhaps Joe Biden says, right? He talks about a sinking economy. We are not in a sinking economy, are we, John? Uh, based on what I'm seeing out there, if we were in a sinking economy, corporate profits would be lower uh, obviously, unemployment is a, is a concern right now. We did see a lot of uh, unemployment this past uh, year, this past month. The numbers were up again. Um, but overall, corporations are performing and they're getting their product out there. They're selling. Profits are up. Uh, there's some real positive things about the economy that uh, maybe they're not talking about. But if you just looked at maybe one or two metrics, such as unemployment, it certainly is not a good thing. And then look at the deficits, too. I mean, that's certainly a challenge ahead. Yeah. And I don't think that challenge is going to get any better. It doesn't inter- seem. No, doesn't I mean, it's that. interesting. Joe Biden is talking about now is a good time to actually spend more. Yeah. And, and I, Janet Yellen, I think, came yeah. out and basically said she's going to be asking for for more. Yeah. What What is this theory that now is a good time, given given the rate of given the rate of um, given the rate of, uh, of of deflation? What is that point they're trying to make that well, now is a good time to do that? Uh, because the cost of money is so cheap okay. right now. So if the U.S. has to borrow money, now's the time to borrow it, not at at much higher interest rates, right? So refinancing your debt, whether you're a government or you're an individual, usually makes sense. Um, but, you know, we always talk about be careful about refinancing and pulling money out of the equity that you have. But that's what the government does every time they print money, right? They're, they're just refinancing their debt, but they're also um, taking more debt out as well. So we've got to be cautious as individuals, and we should be cautious as a country. When we think about that, plus tax hikes, plus increasing minimum wage, are we going to start? Are, aren't we going to start seeing a point at which it's becoming more and more expensive? Well, I would think so. Yeah, I would think you'd start to see it. Uh, you know, a slowdown could be a slowdown in the economy because of it. But uh, I think the economy is ready to have a, a nice rebound here. Okay. So at least for the next year, possibly two, uh, we may actually have a pretty good couple of years coming. People are going to probably look at state by state, too, aren't they? I would imagine so. Sure. Each state has their own individual New York is in much worse shape Mm -hmm. than, say, Arizona or Florida. California. People are leaving California. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's the first time in a long time I can remember when we're looking at unemployment that people are looking more and more to the states. I think what one of these things the pandemic did was highlight the power of states to show what they can do to hurt and harm or help mm-hmm. and build their economies. And I think people are going to become much more mobile over the next couple of years. That's just my sense. Was well, it that politics is local? Yeah. Type yeah. Of thing? And, and so evidently is economics. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Evidently. All right. Something so, to watch for. Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, we haven't even talked about up in the north, the northwest, right. how bad things are up there. Yeah. 
All right, Securities and Advisory Services offer the Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finn Recipient, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Plenty Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. We'll talk tomorrow. Thanks, so. John. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. I'm putting in a word for this great documentary, Poor to CEO, The Incredible Journey of Herman Cain. Talk about remembering and knowing great men and women in just a moment. But um, Herman Cain's story is an all-American, all-American dream story. From the poorest of the poor beginnings to becoming the CEO of a major corporation, presidential run, great radio host, um, just a really uh, hugely impactful man in his community in Atlanta. And um, the story, Poor to CEO, The Incredible Journey of Herman Cain, it's really one of the most inspirational films of the last year. It's available exclusively at SalemNow.com. Make sure to use the promo code PHOENIX to save 20%. Poor to CEO, The Herman Herman Cain Story at SalemNow.com. Speaking of honoring great men and women, an un, um, uh, unarticulated, maybe too strong, a very, very, um, very muted uh, response to some of the monuments being torn down, statues being torn down over the uh, riots last summer, was what's being lost in removing statues, removing history, putting things down, what you might call a memory hole. And to counter that, Some may recall that in his July 4th speech at Mount Rushmore, Donald Trump spoke about building a national garden of American heroes, building statues to people who made America great in politics, culture, sciences, and other things, a place where people could actually study or learn about great Americans by – by going to visit more than just a Mount Rushmore or more than just a statue here and there, especially one that might have been destroyed. He said statues are silent teachers, and that's indeed right. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Statues are silent teachers, Um, calling forth accomplishments and sacrifices of our exceptional fellow citizens who, despite their flaws, placed their virtues, their talents, and their lives in the service of our nation. In preserving them, we show reverence for our past, we dignify our present, we inspire those who are to come. These statues are not alone. They belong to generations that have come before us and generations yet unborn. And so today, President Trump uh, issued an executive order, might be one of his last ones, Uh, as he leaves office on Wednesday, listing dozens of significant or historically significant Americans whose uh, figures are to be featured in the National Garden of American Heroes. And it's a really interesting list. And um, one one could think of, you know, people that would be added to it or people that, um, you know, maybe don't quite deserve it. But it's a heck of a list. And it it, and it includes. Presidents, obviously, not all of them. Uh, Supreme Court justices like Thurgood Marshall, Antonin Scalia. Uh, My favorite one is up there, thank goodness, Robert Jackson. Um, Athletes, Muhammad Ali, Kobe Bryant, uh, Roberto Clemente. I haven't thought of him in a long time. Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, Jim Thorpe. 
Uh, everyone in the arts uh, that you would probably want there is there from, my gosh, uh, Nat King Cole, Duke Ellington, Billy Holiday, Whitney Houston, Frank Sinatra, Walt Disney, uh, Irving Berlin. Uh, these are people, I mean, this what a great tribute to going out. Uh, and thinking about what, what one of the things that made America great, what 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 does Frank Sinatra say? What is America to me? Most of all, the people, right? That's America to me. Certainly, there's a group of great military leaders um, and military heroes. Everyone from uh, Jimmy Doolittle to Audie Murphy. You can imagine others. George Patton is on there. Matthew Ridgway. Uh, there's some interesting theologians there, including C.T. Vivian who didn't probably get as much due as he should have having died. Uh, when did, he, he died the same, um, he died the same day as, uh, as the former congressman who, uh, yeah, Cong Congressman Lewis died. And so he didn't get the same attention. Thank you. Uh, Sally Ride, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, scientists, Thomas Edison, Milton Friedman. That's a smart one. They mark him under the category of science. That's a good one. And then other historical figures uh, that I don't know where you would categorize them uh, explicitly, but uh, everyone from Booker Washington and Harriet Tubman to, uh, my gosh, Ansel Adams, Samuel Adams. They have Hannah Arendt in there, which has been, William Buckley is on there too. They have Hannah Arendt in there, which is kind of interesting and made for a fun little debate on uh, Twitter amongst uh, some conservative political philosophers. She was one of the more popular political philosophers. I've quoted, it, quoted her here from time to time. Eichmann in Jerusalem is probably her most studied work. Before that, she wrote on totalitarianism. And um, it's interesting. She wasn't particularly known to be conservative. And what we're saying is, how about Leo Strauss? Can we get a? Why do we have a Hannah Arendt statue and no Leo Strauss statue? We should have a Leo Strauss statue. It's um, it certainly would complement uh, complement uh, the the political philosophy range. And I think more people should study Leo Strauss. Harder to read, harder to understand. But uh, well worth it. All right, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Jim is in Phoenix. Hi, Jim. Oh, hi, Seth. Thanks. Um, gosh. Okay, I wanted to ask you because I thought you would know. Um, Donald Trump is still commander in chief, right? So who's giving the orders for these troops to be? Massing in Washington D.C. It's Christopher Miller, who's the acting Secretary of Defense along with requests from the heads in uh, the governors in um, in uh, Maryland and Virginia and D.C. Mayor Bowser. But it's being done, as I understand it. It's being uh, being uh, called up, as I understand it, by Christopher Miller, who is. The and how long has he been assistant secretary? Christopher of Miller became secretary, uh, assistant or acting secretary of defense in November, I guess. Ah, OK. Yeah. In November. Well, when uh, uh, Esper left, remember, Mark Esper was oh, the, yes. was the previous. Yeah, that's my understanding of it. And so it's interesting, you know, because we've had, you know, we've had these um, these fears at state capitals too, right? Uh, I don't know if you read the Arizona Republic. I, I don't necessarily recommend it, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. And um, 
And there was a story interesting today about uh, all the um, all the security at state capitals around the country expecting a lot of activity and action, uh, protest or riot action over the weekend. Uh, all the state capitals over the weekend went on high alert uh, from Lansing to Sacramento and from Montpelier to Phoenix. Uh, authorities began boarding up doors, windows, erecting barricades, installing cyclone fencing, uh, concertina wire in some places. And nothing. Zero. Zilch. Quiet, quiet, quiet. You can overreact to this stuff. You certainly can. You can also create ideation. It's not a good look. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. On that issue of statues... I noticed uh, at the height of um, – at the end of July, Charles Kessler of the Claremont Review of Books was writing something about when Donald Trump mentioned this National Garden of statues. Um, he, he queried, um, to whom will Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the slogan, and the liberal Democrats now marching in its train be erecting statues? Certainly not to Martin Luther King, who insisted on non-violence and a colorblind constitution. Those causes are no longer in favor. Um, nor will any honor be due to the leaders we've proposed for Mount Rushmore not so long ago. Forget LBJ. Wilson is already expunged from Princeton University. They'll probably come after FDR for interning Japanese Americans. Purges like this that we've seen don't stop until all the statues are smashed. But it's the statues you put up, Charles writes, not the ones you pull down that define a great nation. And it's one of the reasons I, um, I'm going to have Lee Habib joining us in the top of the next hour. Um, he had a great piece in Newsweek a couple years ago that I think still is worthy of um, discussion, especially on a day like today, Martin Luther King Day, because it's really what the left expunges of Martin Luther King that I think is the most important to be studied. Uh, not just the stuff I spoke about in my monologue and his commitment to uh, natural rights and, um, and, uh, and morality based in Western understanding and tradition, but I think also... Um, the fact that he was a reverend and a minister, and that's how he wanted to be remembered. I remember a speech uh, Dr. Bennett once gave honoring Martin Luther King and his wife, Coretta Scott, was in the audience. He kept referring to him, Reverend King, Reverend King, Reverend King, not Dr. King, as so many like to. And Coretta went up to Bill afterwards and said, thank you for remembering that my husband was a minister, a Christian minister of God. I suppose, however, if you go by the Smithsonian's definition of what whiteness is and Christianity is an example of it, this conflicts with the history that we certainly were sure we knew. So there is this effort to expunge, and it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible effort. But get used to 1984. Get used to more and more of it in the memory hole. Lee Habib coming right up. We'll be right back. 